This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. On April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Riots broke out in cities across the country. That night, Robert F. Kennedy spoke to a majority black crowd in Indianapolis, Indiana. Kennedy stood on the back of a flatbed truck. He wore an overcoat that had belonged to his brother, the late President John F. Kennedy, who'd been assassinated five years earlier. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. Robert Kennedy had entered the 1968 presidential race barely a month earlier, in March of that year. The most potent theme of his campaign gelled in Indiana. Kennedy's vision was of a cross-race coalition based on class as much as skin color. One that could unite around what Kennedy saw as the biggest injustice of the plight of the working class and the poor in America. I've been to the Dell area of Mississippi and I've seen young children starve. Not uh, the possibility that they are starving, but starving. Just as I've seen them in Asia and I've seen them in Africa. I've seen them with their their distended stomachs and I've seen them covered with the sores of starvation. And I've had talked to doctors who've gone down there and looked at them after we had our hearing, who said that they are destroyed for life because they didn't have enough to eat through their third and fourth year. That they will never be mentally well again. And here we have this great produce. Here we have a gross national product of 800 billions of dollars, and we have children starving to death in the United States. This is from a campaign speech Kennedy gave at Indiana University on April 24, 1968. He connects the hunger of black children in the Mississippi Delta to the hunger endured by the children of a disabled white coal miner in Kentucky. These are not men that never worked. These are not men that just sat around, but the man was disabled from a mining accident. 20 years, he got $80 a month. He had six children. They received milk once a month for those children and for the rest of the family. They, the day that I was there, they had bread and gravy for breakfast. They're going to have beans for lunch, and they would have bread and gravy for supper if they had anything at all. Kennedy was also clear about the sources of that class inequality. In that same speech, given at Indiana University... Kennedy told the students that they were the beneficiaries of a system that diminished the prospects of working-class Americans. The chance of going to a college or a university is much greater if you're affluent or if you're wealthy in the United States. So that, uh, I mean, again, I'll give the example of my own family. The fact is that I have seven sons, and the fact is that I know that I could get any one of those sons into a college someplace in the United States. But I know also that there is a father in uh, Mississippi 
or that there's a father in Harlem, or there's a father in Bedford-Stuyvesant, or there's a father in Watts who can't do that, and whose son can't go on to college, or can't go on to a university. So why should my children or my sons be treated any differently, and why should theirs be sent to fight the war in Vietnam? This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. On May 7th, 1968, RFK won the Democratic primary in Indiana. According to a Harris poll, Kennedy's victory went a long way toward establishing his claim as perhaps the likeliest Democrat in 1968 who can deliver both the black and the lower income white urban vote, end quote. Historians now have a more complex and nuanced view of RFK's 1968 campaign. And the difficult truth is, we will never know if that coalition could have won Kennedy the Democratic nomination, let alone the presidency. Because Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated in California on June 6, 1968, forever freezing him in that moment of history and in the minds of American progressives. Well, about 20 years later, in 1989, a young Harvard undergrad named Richard Collenberg found inspiration in Kennedy's run and wrote his senior thesis on it. It was titled Coalition Building and Robert Kennedy's 1968 Presidential Campaign. Since then, Collenberg has become one of the most influential champions of assistance policies based on class more than race. He's written many books on this subject, including 1996's The Remedy, Class, Race, and Affirmative Action, all the way to his latest book on class and housing. It's called Excluded, How Snob Zoning, Nimbyism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. And he joins us today. Richard Collenberg, welcome to On Point. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Megna. Uh, I understand that to this day you still have a photograph or a portrait of Robert Kennedy hanging in your office. Is that right? I do. He's, uh, for, for all the reasons you just outlined, he's an enormous inspiration uh, to me and, and, and many others. Uh, he really was, was moving our country towards a, a moment of, of unity among people who uh, were, were at each other's throats. I mean, working class white and black people were were having strong disagreements uh, over a variety of issues and and yet he he brought those uh, those folks together and uh, I, I still hold on uh, with some hope that the right politician uh, with the right message can can bring these groups together again hmm. well in 1989 as I mentioned you were a Harvard undergrad and um, I understand that your father had also gone to Harvard so in a sense you were a legacy student there your grandfather helped pay for your Harvard tuition so what was it though specifically about Kennedy that so captivated a 20 or 21 year old Richard Collenberg uh, you know walking the red bricks in Harvard Yard in Cambridge Massachusetts well uh, you know I had been been raised as a as a traditional uh, upper middle class white liberal who uh, cared a lot about racial injustice. I continue to care a lot about racial injustice. But uh, as I got to Harvard, I saw that uh, that even many of the uh, the black and Hispanic students who were there uh, came from uh, upper middle class backgrounds, and the white and Asian students, for the most part, were much wealthier. And so, uh, you know, Harvard 
had done a good job of bringing children of different races together, which is an important thing to do. But effectively, Harvard had excluded uh, working class people of all races from attending. And I thought, uh, wow, Robert Kennedy was really on to something here when he said that, uh, you know, we, we, we in essence use race as a proxy for class in America and uh, use it in order to avoid some of these larger issues of class inequality that are, that are frankly more expensive to address than, uh, than racial inequality. You know, in the recent litigation, uh, it came out that 71% of the black and Hispanic students at, at Harvard came from the richest one-fifth of the uh, black and Hispanic populations nationally. And the white students and the Asian students are, are even wealthier. And, uh, and yet, you know, w when, we, when we try to create racial diversity uh, without class diversity, we're, we're missing something that's enormously important. Okay, so your argument then is that affirmative action in places like Harvard worked to make campuses more racially diverse, but they were bringing in, as you said, the highest income uh, black and Hispanic, white and Asian students. That's right. Okay. Now, the recent litigation <laughs> that you mentioned is, of course, that Supreme Court case uh, where the court recently uh, overturned uh, affirmative action um, programs uh, at Harvard and uh, other uh, universities that, that use them. You uh, actually filed, I believe, uh, expert uh, testimony or expert uh, briefing uh, in that case uh, it, on behalf of the students who were arguing, uh, the students and the groups that were arguing against affirmative action. That's actually made you somewhat of a persona non grata amongst some of your fellow uh, progressives for having done that. Uh, but you, do you stand by your position there that affirmative action was not necessarily the best way to achieve, you know, whatever goals Harvard had set out for itself? Uh, absolutely. No, I, you know, to be clear, I'm very much a strong proponent of ensuring that our colleges are racially diverse. Uh, it's just I'd like to see colleges have both uh, racial and class diversity. And that's not what the current, you know, the existing system of race-based affirmative action was, was producing. In essence, uh, you know, racial affirmative action made institutions like Harvard and University of North Carolina feel good that they had created a fair system because there was, uh, you know, there was some racial representation. And that was used to paper over uh, an enormously unequal system of admissions that provides massive advantages for legacy students, for the children of faculty, uh, for those who apply early in the admissions process. I mean, the, the, the deck is stacked against working class and low-income students at these selective colleges. Mm -hmm. And an affirmative action made, made people feel better because uh, it was, uh, it did provide, you know, phenotypic diversity, but it didn't get, you know, working class black students and Hispanic students uh, were, were very rare on campus. And I, I thought we could yeah. create something better if, uh, if universities weren't able to kind of try to get racial justice on the cheap by just admitting um, upper middle class students of color. Yeah. You know how we're living in an age where um, 
uh, far-right conservatives look at uh, more centrist Republicans and call them rhinos, right? Republican in name <laughs> only. I imagine that perhaps some of your progressive colleagues looked at you and your support for uh, ending affirmative action and may have wanted to have call you, called you a lino, a liberal in name only. I mean, is that is that sort of the feedback that you got um, when you supported this case? Well, certainly, you know, I have some liberal friends who strongly disagree with my position, and I, I understand that. I, I think they're coming from a good place, trying to promote racial diversity. I just think all the evidence suggests that places like Harvard and UNC can produce racial diversity if they use uh, class-based affirmative action programs that, that employ the right uh, measures of, of class. Well, we're going to actually expand your analysis far beyond college campuses and to other important aspects of American life uh, about why class may be more important than race exclusively. So we'll do that when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Richard Collenberg joins us today. He's a leading liberal thinker who has been arguing for years that class is a more effective way to create policy or class-based policies in order to achieve true equality in America, more effective than race exclusively. And he takes his analysis far beyond affirmative action. And his recent, most recent book, in fact, looks at the world of housing. It's called Excluded, How Snob Zoning, Nimbyism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. Um, and Richard, I'd love to quote a little bit from uh, an, a, an article that you wrote in The Atlantic um, that sort of crystallized what's in your book here. And it opens with a, a pretty good paragraph, I have to say. You say, uh, across the country, a lot of good white liberals, people who purchase copies of White Fragility and decry the U.S. Supreme Court for ending affirmative action, sleep every night in exclusive suburbs that socially engineer economic segregation by government edict. The huge inequalities between upscale municipalities and their poorer neighbors didn't just happen. They are in large measure the product of laws that are hard to square with the inclusive in this house we believe signs on lawns and in many highly educated deep blue suburbs. So you're not pulling your punches there. Uh, give me an example of uh, of uh, of sort of neighboring communities where you see this uh, hypocrisy. Let's call it that. Yeah. Well, in in, in that article, I talk about uh, Scarsdale, New York, a, a suburb of New York City, uh, which delivered seventy five percent of its votes to Joe Biden, 
and yet uh, essentially bans any form of multifamily housing. So the idea is anyone is welcome to live in Scarsdale. It doesn't matter your, your race, your background, but you have to be able to afford a single-family home. Uh, and then they go further at times and say you have to be able to afford that single-family home on a lot that's you know no smaller than quarter acre, half an acre. And so it's, it's building a wall to keep people of modest means out. So you can have uh, people in, in nearby Portchester, which is much poorer, who uh, you know, will come over to Scarsdale and mow the lawns and take care of the kids. Maybe some of them teach in the public schools, but they're not allowed. Uh, to live in the community, they're excluded, and uh, people don't want their kids attending uh, the public schools. And I saw, that, you know, recently in in the Atlantic, uh, a, there was a, a defense of this type of of zoning. They said, "Well, it's it makes sense because you, uh, you, you know, the kids, uh, the kids, you know, the parents of those who are less fortunate." aren't going to pay their their weight in taxes you know they'll they'll educate they'll be educated in the school but not uh, not pay enough uh, which I found uh, I found really appalling uh, and and yet that's kind of a it's an acceptable form of prejudice we would never say mm. and shouldn't say that uh, we want to keep black people out of a neighborhood but I've been astounded to see in comments to articles I've written people are very perfectly fine saying that they don't want poor and working class people to live to live in their communities. Oh, that's interesting because I was just going to say that uh, when I read your article and, and your, the and the book also, I just thought, well, we're trying to avoid uh, the pitfall of stereotyping, right? But we, you know, in hearing you say that uh, the the folks living in these wealthier suburbs are trying to keep people out, right? Trying to keep lower income families and their children out of the the neighborhoods. I mean, I was going to say that that seems a little unfair because viewing it from another perspective, the are folks living in these suburbs not necessarily just trying to be exclusive of others, but trying to instead, they see it as preserving the character, the um, the livability of their neighborhoods and their suburbs, of the, um, you know, the, the quality of the schools because of the, the high uh, taxes and uh, property values, that it's not exclusionary, rather, but instead uh, a preservationist uh, approach. What do you think? Well, I guess that's one way to put it. Uh, and, and to be clear, I'm not... <laughs> well, because otherwise uh, you make them sound like yeah. the George Wallaces and yeah. Bull Connors, as you say, of the 21st century. Yes. So uh, I, I want to be clear that, uh, you know, people living in exclusive communities, I think for the most part, uh, are not bad people. I think in many cases they... Uh, they move to an area for the good public schools, and they probably don't give a whole lot of thought to the issue of, of zoning. And what the book is trying to do is make people who, who do have good hearts realize that to defend the existing zoning policies is to exclude unfairly uh, people who, who want something better for their kids, uh, but can't have it because the government is 
engineering, local governments are engineering uh, class segregation. Uh, for, the, for the book, I interviewed uh, Chiara Cornelius, who is a, a mother who lives in, uh, lived in, in a dangerous neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. And she, she just wanted better schools for her kids. She had one kid, one child who was, you know, straight A student. And yet this was, uh, you know, she was not happy with the local school. And, uh, and, you know, she's not going to bring crime or uh, be an unpleasant neighbor. Uh, she's, she wants to live the American dream. And the, by banning any form of multifamily housing, communities are frustrating that American dream. And they're also, you know, limiting the supply of overall supply of housing in an area, driving up costs for everyone. So, uh, so I, I think it's not that, that the individuals in these exclusive communities are nefarious. It's that uh, I don't think they fully realize the harm that these invisible walls uh, are imposing on, on the rest of society. You know what's so interesting to me and disheartening, I have to say, it links back to what you said earlier, that uh, class-based bias it may be one of the, the few remaining forms of, of bias which is perfectly acceptable to express openly, right? Because you had been saying that some of the folks in these neighborhoods that you profiled uh, were saying, well, by if we change zoning laws and allow more affordable or, or multifamily housing, that we would have suddenly have neighbors who were louder or littered more, made more noise, th things like that. And I thought, huh, that reminded me of one of Harvard University's responses uh, in, the, um, in, the, in the affirmative action case where Harvard said, well, if we looked at more class-based uh, means of, uh, of admissions, a, it might not achieve the diversity they wanted, but B, I think they also said that it would reduce the academic uh, quality of the students coming in. Um, so, I mean, is it? Is, do you think that that's Harvard's version of being kind of overt about its class bias, just like you were talking about the neighbors in these uh, wealthier suburban neighborhoods? Uh, I do. Uh, I mean, the, the common theme is exclusion of working class people. And in the, in the litigation... Uh, you know the expert uh, report that that I worked on with a with a colleague from Duke University found that Harvard could substantially expand its socioeconomic diversity, allow a lot more working class students in, and the mean SAT score would go from the 99th percentile to the 98th. And you know when you think about the fact that there's an average. SAT score at the 98th percentile, even though you have a whole lot more students who've overcome odds, they haven't have had everything given to them the way many of the current Harvard students uh, have. Uh, it, it, to my mind, that's a, a more impressive group of students. So, so it's a myth to say that there aren't enough uh, low-income and working-class students out there who can can do well at selective colleges. Uh, and and the, the, the common theme is uh, that one can look down upon those who uh, have been less fortunate and, and get away with it in American society. I mean, the comments, I wrote some pieces for the New York Times and the comments sections were astounding. People uh, 
engaging in the worst kinds of stereotypes about uh, about working class people coming into their their neighborhoods if you reformed uh, the zoning laws. I had one guy who said, you know, you don't understand the the, the dogs of poor people bark louder. I mean, it, it was just it, it was astonishing to me the way people would uh, assume that those who who faced extra odds are 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 somehow beneath them. Wow. Well, tell me more then about the differences between um, Scarsdale and Portchester uh, in Westchester uh, County in, in New York, because I want to get a more granular understanding of uh, of how you see zoning and um, purposeful exclusion working here. For example, I think you had said earlier that Scarsdale's medium ho- median household income was more than a quarter million dollars, and that was three times that of Portchester. What were some of the other differences in the communities, specifically regarding um, the homes people live in and the kind of zoning laws that they had to uh, encounter, that they would encounter in each of those communities? Yeah. Well, in in Scarsdale, you have, in essence, a ban on multifamily housing. And uh, as a result, the prices of the homes, you know, exceed a million dollars. And in Portchester, they allow all sorts of different types of housing. You know, it's healthy to have people of different backgrounds and uh, and different forms of of housing. And uh, and yet, because there's uh, such exclusion, and in places like Scarsdale and other. Uh, exclusive communities in Westchester County in New York, you end up seeing a, a real reduction in the opportunities of students in in Portchester. So the the level of academic achievement is much lower, in part because the students are poorer and you know therefore face more more obstacles in life. They're less likely to have nutrition, health care, and so. That shows up on test scores. But the other piece, which Scarsdale could do something about, is uh, is that there are concentrations of low-income students uh, in, in places like Portchester. There is research to suggest that low-income students, if given the right environment, can do phenomenal things. Uh, and there was one housing intervention, for example, in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, right outside of Washington, D.C., where uh, low-income housing uh, was built in uh, modest numbers in wealthy communities. And a researcher, Heather Schwartz, the RAND Corporation, studied how those students did over time. And uh, they closed the, the math gap uh, by half with the, with the wealthier students, the reading gap by one-third. And there was no harm done to the, to the middle class and the upper middle class students. So... Uh, so they're, they're they're just real um, real costs mm. that uh, are are borne by people when we uh, when we build these exclusionary walls. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is on point. You know, Richard, you also point out just to underscore uh, the differences that come with uh, econ- let's call it economic segregation, which then also uh, there's a strong overlap uh, with race. But with these lower income communities, you, you said that in, um, in Portchester, there was between Portchester and Scarsdale, so Scarsdale being the higher income community, there was a 55 uh, percentage point gap in 
achievement or performance at grade level in both English and math. So students in Scarsdale were uh, 55 percentage points ahead in terms of how many of their students were achieving at grade level. Uh, So a huge difference. But one thing that we often hear is, well, we don't necessarily have to build more middle or low-income housing in the wealthier communities. Instead, what we ought to do at the state level is increase funding for the for schools in those lower income communities because i mean in fact lots of people say this not just residents in rich communities you know teachers unions in various states etc uh because then with that increased funding you know, the money wouldn't be so, so much of a difference. We could re- achieve, we could raise achievement uh, in lower income schools. Why isn't that a an adequate solution? Well, let me say a couple of things. One is I support the idea of spending more money in higher poverty schools because I think it can make some difference. But uh, but going back to that Montgomery County study. The, Montgomery County does that. They spend $2,000 extra per pupil in the higher poverty schools. And even though they were spending less in the upper middle class schools, the low income students uh, did far better in, you know, with integrated schools than they did with, uh, with the compensatory spending approach. So essentially, that's what, you know, 95% of education reform is about. Uh, it's let's try to make separate but equal work as best we can. And I'm certainly in favor of making sure that higher poverty schools have the resources they need. But what about chipping away at the segregation itself, uh, the underlying segregation that is based in race uh, and also based in class? I mean, if, we, if you look at trends over time, we've seen about a 30 percent reduction in racial segregation since 1970. And we've seen a doubling of income segregation during that time period. So we have to, and that's what really impacts academic achievement. It's it's not that black students somehow, you know, improve academically when sitting next to white students. It's always been that low-income students do better in middle-class environments. And so uh, there are a number of school districts that are trying to address this issue. And uh, we've uh, the, the Century Foundation, where I worked, has identified 171 places, uh, school districts and charter schools that are that are trying to address the economic segregation of schooling. Uh, but I think, complementary to that, we should just eliminate some of the outright class discrimination in zoning that uh, perpetuates uh, income segregation in America. Hmm. Well, today we're speaking with Richard Collenberg. He is a non-resident fellow at Georgetown, or excuse me, non-resident scholar at Georgetown University. And he's long been a liberal champion of crafting policies around reducing class inequality rather than race exclusively. He's written about that in Affirmative Action uh, and Labor Organizing, and now he has a new book out called Excluded, How Snob Zoning, Nimbyism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. More in a moment. This is On Point.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And just a quick heads up on something we're working on for next week. We're going to be talking about the ocean temperature off the coast of Florida because it recently exceeded 100 degrees. 100 degrees in seawater off the coast of Florida. And meteorologists say that could potentially be the hottest seawater ever measured. And for those people who are precise about their measurements. Yes, I'm speaking about 100 uh, degrees Fahrenheit, not Celsius. So listeners in Florida, we definitely want to hear from you. Have you noticed the water being hotter than normal? Uh, have you been in the ocean recently, seen anything unusual? Have you tried swimming in it? What does it feel like to swim in 100 degree temperature water? Also, have you seen changes uh, maybe in the marine environments? around you. So definitely want to hear from Florida listeners on this. You can join us by recording a message on the On Point Vox Pop app, and you can find that app if you don't already have it. Just go to wherever you get your apps, look for On Point Vox Pop, or you can leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. So Floridians or anyone uh, in the southeastern United States that's uh, got a chance to experience that very hot seawater want to hear from you. That's for later uh, next week. Today we're speaking with Richard Collenberg. His latest book is Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. Uh, Richard, by the way, I should have asked you sort of a more um, a question with a national perspective here. Where do you see this class bias in housing um, rearing its head the most in the country? Well, there's been a lot of research on that question. And a Brookings uh, scholar, Jenny Schutz, kind of summarized it as follows. You know, you see the worst forms of exclusionary zoning on the coast. You see it particularly Washington, D.C., through Boston. And you see it on, on the West Coast, uh, California, uh, Oregon, Washington, and uh, your listeners will will realize those also tend to be the most liberal areas of the country, uh, which on the one hand gives me some hope for reform because if we can appeal to if I can I and others can appeal to liberals that this is a system that's unfair and exclusionary and bad for civil rights, bad for the environment, bad for housing costs, then maybe we can get reform. And we're starting to see reform in, in some places. Uh, but it's, it's deeply troubling to me and says something larger about American liberalism that, that this worst form of exclusion uh, is, is found kind of in our, our own backyards. Well, and, and the research that you, that you quote, uh, find, or the researchers, I should say, because as you said, there's been a lot done, find that the more liberal or the, the bluer uh, a county, the more, the more restrictive their uh, zoning laws are. And in fact, you, uh, you quote political scientist uh, Omar Wazo, who says uh, that 
there are people in the town of uh, Princeton, New Jersey, who will have a Black Lives Matter sign on their front lawn and a sign saying, we love our Muslim neighbors. But he says the truth is it really means we love our Muslim neighbors as long as they're millionaires. Uh, but why, why do you think that is? What is it in American liberalism that you think um, is allowing for this, again, sort of Janus-like view on what uh, equality actually means and embracing uh, race-based equality, but being openly disdainful of class-based equality? Right. Well, I, I think there's... Uh, there's a benign explanation and then a less benign explanation. Uh, for, for zoning, the benign explanation is that uh, liberals have historically you know, cons- been very concerned about the environment, uh, very concerned about uh, small-D democratic processes, wanting to make sure that everyone has a say in how government is run. And those are good values, but they've been weaponized to uh, stop development and stop uh, development, particularly in uh, you know more more exclusive areas, and so so that's the benign, you know fairly benign explanation. The one that's more troubling uh, goes to this question of class bias. Uh, the Harvard philosopher Michael Sandel uh, has a book on um, meritocracy, and and he makes the cites some powerful research which finds that more educated people who in today's world are more likely to be liberal, politically liberal, uh, have less bias against uh, racial minorities, which is a positive thing. We want education to open people's minds and make them less prejudiced in terms of race. But upper middle, uh, highly educated people are more prejudiced, more disdainful, uh, and dislike people who have less education, uh, which translates into people who have, have less income. And so uh, while there's an admirable uh, recognition that racial bias is wrong uh, among liberals, I think a lot of us have a, you know, turn a blind eye to, to class issues. And that's explained in part because there, there is a disdain. Uh, probably the most famous incident was, you know, during the 2016 campaign when Hillary Clinton uh, said that uh, you know working class white people, half of them uh, are are deplorables. And on one level, uh, one can understand what she was trying to say, which is that racism, homophobia, Islamophobia are unacceptable, and I think she's completely right on that. Uh, but to to paint uh, people with less less education in with that that broad brush. And to not recognize that they have their own struggles uh, that f- they feel are being ignored uh, has is I think it's wrong, but it's also politically disastrous. I mean, it paved the way for uh, a president who I view as mm. kind of the closest thing to to George Wallace being elected president. I think it was a huge step back for the country, but I think there's some there's some liberal uh, bias on class issues that that plays into this. Right. And so since we, again, this is a class and race have a strong overlap in this country. Uh, We know that. But picking up on what you just said, it sounds like you're saying that uh, college educated affluent liberals, college educated affluent white liberals, especially in this country, by being, um, sounds like 
more or less openly disdainful uh, about lower income Americans with the thought that, you know, I earned it and you didn't. Um, they're also they're being disdainful specifically or more so of white working class uh, Americans. And that is uh what you say is paved the way for for sort of the Trump version of authoritarianism to rise. So what would you give me a, a quick example of what would you change in the world of housing, coming back to housing to overcome that? Well, we've seen uh, some positive change in places like California, not because upper middle class white liberals have have come around, but because uh Working-class white people and working-class black and Hispanic people, the old Bobby Kennedy Coalition, came together in California and in Oregon to change the zoning laws. Now in California, uh, effectively, you can build four units on what had been a lot for a single-family home. And that occurred only because Republicans— from white working-class areas, many of them rural, allied with Democrats uh, who represented black and Hispanic interests uh, to come together for, for that change. And so, so it is possible. And the same exact coalition came together in Oregon. <clears throat> it was bipartisan and wouldn't have passed except with white working-class support. And so that raises a larger question you know, what kind of political coalition could Democrats put together if they if they did uh, champion policies that are uh, clearly aimed at at class bias? And I've proposed, for example, an economic fair housing act, uh, which would s provide plaintiffs uh, a chance to sue a government, local government like Scarsdale, and say, you're, you're discriminating based on income through your government laws, and uh, you need to provide a powerful justification to, uh, to explain what, what you're doing. And uh, in that instance, uh, there's a similar uh, use of this in civil rights law—it's called disparate impact. Uh, if the burden shifts to the uh, to the municipality to to explain what what it is they're they're trying to do, and in many cases, especially with exclusive single-family zoning, I think those those laws would would have to fall. Mm, okay. Well, I want to get back to the issue of um, class and race in this country, because. There are several studies, many studies, in fact, and, and I would say ample evidence that even for um, uh, for for black Americans who have reached, you know, middle, upper middle or, or even the wealthiest uh, income brackets in this country, racism is still a fact uh, in in their lives. And I want to give you a couple of examples that. One comes from my home station of WBUR. Uh, my colleagues there did an analysis regarding mortgage lending in Boston from 2015 to 2020. And they found that black Bostonians were denied mortgage loans at much higher rates uh, than white uh, mortgage applicants were. And I want to play a moment from a lead reporter on that investigation. This is Zaninjor Enwemeka. 
We found that 6% of all loan applications to purchase a home get denied. Black and Hispanic loan applicants were denied at rates two to three times that of white applicants in Boston. We also looked at denial rates geographically, and we found something else really interesting. We found it's harder to secure loans to buy homes in majority black parts of the city. Lenders denied loans in these areas at two and a half times the rate of white areas. So that's WBUR's Zaninjur and Wameka. And more broadly, across the United States, there have been studies that found that national lenders give fewer mortgage loans to black applicants than white applicants, even when their incomes are both, both groups are high um, and they have the same debt ratios. So the black applicants were rejected more often, which brings us to this core criticism, I think, of the class-based approach. Uh, And it comes from Richard Rothstein, who's Uh, at the Economic Policy Institute, and he just says that class-based preferences are not an adequate substitute for race-based ones because of the nation's history. The pursuit of equity is quite a different matter from the pursuit of justice. The pursuit of justice is an entirely separate issue, entirely distinct, and should not be confused with the first, and that is the need to remedy centuries of slavery, segregation, and exploitation a governmentally imposed caste system, not class system, but caste system on African-Americans. Richard Kallenberg, briefly, what's your response to that? Well, well, first of all, I I completely agree that there are distinct harms uh, associated with with racism, with racial discrimination that need to be addressed outside of the the class approach. So when, for example, I talk about an economic fair housing act, I'm not talking about repealing the fair housing act. We need to double down on more resources to crack down on discrimination in the housing market, in the mortgage market, uh, and and new tools to address racial discrimination. So the the point isn't that it's class only. Uh, race plays a huge role in American society. I mean, the murder of George Floyd is not explained by class. It's explained by race. And so, uh, the, but the, the larger message I'm trying to send here is that in addition to addressing those very, very important race issues, uh, American liberalism hasn't given enough attention to class, and uh, and that we have to have to do that. On on Richard Rothstein's point about whether uh, you know the need to address our our history of slavery and segregation, uh, I'll I'll completely agree. Uh, Martin Luther King, uh, when he was uh, looking at uh, what to do after uh, as the Civil Rights Act was being passed, he said, "Well, we have this." enormous legacy of segregation and, and, uh, and slavery and redlining, we have to take affirmative action. Mm. But his remedy was a bill of rights for the disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And he recognized that precisely because of our history of discrimination, black people would disproportionately benefit from a class-based approach. Uh, and at the same time, he said, you know, it's it's a simple matter of justice that poor whites be included as well. Right. So King and Kennedy were very much in sync on this, that we have distinct issues of, of race that we need to address, but we can't ignore uh, larger fundamental issues of, of class as well. Yeah. Yeah, the march was for jobs and justice, right? So That's right. Um, one last question, and we only have about a, a minute and a half to go here because, you know, I was thinking you've written about how um, overall in this country, racism has declined while income inequality has 
uh, has risen significantly. And that brings to mind, you know, the, the working class white Americans out there, and you've spoken with them uh, for your book, who say, I just like my, my, you know, my, my fellow black Americans who are having or Hispanic Americans who are having trouble putting food on the table. I, too, am having trouble putting food on the table for my kids. And yet I'm still hearing people, you know, from the Democratic Party or colleges and universities saying, by virtue of me being white, I have some privilege. Well, it's no privilege to be able to not feed your children. So do you think that um, actually uh, pursuing class-based policies, and again, we only have about um, 40 seconds here or so, could actually then reduce racism as well? Absolutely. And we haven't talked about labor unions at all, but that's a key example. Right now, you know, employers just go in and and uh, fire people who are trying to organize a union. And that's bad for people of all races. But one of the big findings is that when black and white people work together in a labor union, the white people become less racist. So it's it's important. substantively to deal with class. Uh, It's important politically, but it's also much better for our country as a way of of healing some of the racial wounds uh, that that have existed for so long. Well, Richard Collenberg's new book is Excluded, How Snob Zoning, Nimbyism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you, Richard. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Magna. I've really enjoyed it. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.